Ladies and gentlemen, the Brit Pack is back. Simon Head from Rochester in the UK, Chamatkar Sandu from Toronto in Canada, and uh, loads more fights coming your way, and uh, a fair few fireworks on Saturday night at UFC on ESPN Plus 37. Before we dive into all that, Sandu, how's it been? It's been good. It's been a great weekend. It's uh, a Monday here in Canada, which is uh, Thanksgiving, and... I guess happy Thanksgiving to anyone that's listening from Canada. I'm very thankful to be working uh, during this really turbulent time in the world. I know a lot of people out there have lost their jobs um, and are kind of going through tough times. So hopefully they can endure and kind of get on the other side of this pandemic. But yeah, I can't complain. I can't complain. It's been a great weekend of, of action. I'm busy. I'm working. I'm talking to you. To reflect on a fantastic weekend of mixed martial arts so i'm in a good mood it's a lot of fun this week um yeah. you take a look at the fights overall and if you were just looking at it on paper you'd maybe sort of rule it out as almost kind of like a a middling sort of run-of-the-mill sort of fight weekend but the fights really delivered i mean we had some fantastic fantastic action particularly from the UFC card. So, and I think, you know, we should not waste any time, just dive straight in to uh, UFC on ESPN plus 37 or UFC Fight Island 5, um, as it is branded on on, on the Soch. Um Corey Sanhagen versus Marlon Moraes. I will hold my hands up, Sandu. I did not see that finish coming. I thought if anyone was going to win that fight by, by KO or TKO, it would be the magic man, Marlon Moraes. But wow, what a performance from Corey Sanhagen. Gets the finish, second round TKO. And uh, I love the man's attitude. Speaking after the after the fight, both in, in the cage and in the post-fight press conference, after such a big win, it would be really easy and understandable to see a guy get on the mic and just start screaming for a title shot. It was that kind of performance that really does say, I'm here and I'm deserving. But he didn't do that. He was like, look, I understand how this division is laid out. I need another one. Um, and uh, kudos to him. He actually said Aljamain Sterling needs to fight for the title first, which I thought was very, very classy of him. Um, but for anyone who wasn't on the Corey Sanhagen hype train, uh, I think it is time for everybody to sit up and take notice, myself included, because I, I picked against him this weekend. Great performance from the Sandman. Yeah, I think honesty goes a long way, especially in post-fight interviews. And I think everyone you know knows by now that hey, look, the UFC just go ahead, make this official. You know, Aljamain Sterling should be fighting for the title. He should be fighting Peter Yan. But then we had this kind of cloud hanging over it, even though Dana White had said, "Yep, he's next." And but there's still nothing official out. There's no poster. There's no announcement. And so we've got this fight coming up, and everyone's kind of thinking, well, you know. If Marlon Marais wins, and we talked about this last week, Simon, if Marlon Marais wins, could there be some politics played behind the scenes, a few shenanigans, and could he you know, take that spot in place of Aljamain Sterling? Well, Corey Sandhagen kiboshed anything to do with that because he put on a fantastic performance. A spinning heel kick, it didn't land clean, but it did the job. It just kind of grazed the dome, but at that speed... And with that power, that's pretty much all it, you know, all that needed to be done to kind of rock Marlon Marais. And then Sanhagen just swarmed him. And Mark Goddard had seen enough uh, to, to wave it off. Second round finish. 
Corey Sandhagen just bounces back from what would have, you know, probably was a devastating defeat to Aljamain Sterling, uh, losing in 90 seconds via rear naked choke back in June at UFC 250. And to come back to do, to, to, to defeat Marlon Moraes, he's back in the mix now. Uh, and, and he and he played his cards right in that post-fight interview. He's, you know, he's mentioning names like Frankie Edgar and TJ Dillashaw and, and, and names like that. And he's, he's absolutely right. I think he's now in a great spot and a great position where perhaps one more fight and one more win and he should be next in line. He should go on to fight the winner of Peter Yan versus Aljamain Sterling. So congratulations to Corey Sanhagen. And, and I guess, you know, I guess we're going to talk about a bit of fantasy matchmaking. TJ Dillashaw is coming back pretty soon uh, from his suspension. I think TJ Dillashaw needs to fight someone that's at the top of the game, top five ranked, Coming off a, a big win like Corey Sandhagen, if he wants, you can't put TJ Dillashaw back into a title fight coming off a two-year suspension for performance-enhancing drugs, right? But if he can come back, stay clean, and get a win over a highly ranked guy, then I think you can go on to win uh, to to fight for the title. And I think for Corey Sandhagen to have a name like TJ Dillashaw, a former champion in the division, on your resume, I think is going to be the final nail in the coffin which will then just double stamp you know his case to fight for a title at some point in 2021 so i think that's the fight to make Corey sandhagen tj dillashaw winner goes to fight for the title what do you think say si? yeah i mean he spoke after the fight and he said frankie edgar or, or tj dillashaw with all due respect to frankie edgar i think a win over tj dillashaw carries a lot more weight even though tj has been out for as long as he has uh Dillashaw eligible to fight from January 19th, 2021. So it means that Sanhagen's going to be out of the loop for a little bit, but not too long. If they book Dillashaw almost as almost as soon as they can, you know, end of January, then I think that 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 that's a timeline that would probably work for Corey Sanhagen. I think uh, I don't think he's in a position where he should be taking any unnecessary fights just to stay active. He's got himself the ranking position he needs. He's basically in a queue at this point. He's taken his ticket at the meat counter and he's just got to wait until it's his turn, right? And uh, I think the only fight that, 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 that makes any sense for him, for me, is that TJ Dillashaw fight. You be, See, TJ Dillashaw, prior to his suspension, and obviously everything he, he's achieved at that point has, a, has like an asterisk on it now because of the PEDs and all the rest of it. But for me, he was one of the best pound-for-pound fighters on the planet until he ran into Henry Cejudo. So um, for me, he's going to come back like a man possessed. If Corey Sanhagen halts him at source and gets a good win and maybe even finishes him, then boy, he's really done everything he needs to do to get that title shot. And as as we've said on more than one occasion on this podcast, for goodness sake, get Aljamain Sterling and Peter Yan in the cage. I don't know what they're waiting for. They've got they've got a few pay-per-views left this year to fill. Get them on it. You know, get them on the December one if they have to, but just get them on a 2020 pay-per-view, main event or co-main event. Make it happen. Let's see PDM fight again. Let's see him try and defend that belt against Al Jermaine Sterling. That's the fight we need to see. Keep the division moving. And uh, then, early in the new year, let's see Corey Sanhagen and TJ Dillashaw with the winner going on to face the winner 
of uh, the uh, the title fight. So that for me makes total sense, and uh, it, it it's laid out quite nicely in that bantamweight division, which absolutely stacked with talent. But it does need a little bit of a little bit of momentum needs to be picked up just to get things moving at the very top. So that title fight super super important. That was bantamweight featherweight Edson Barboza has announced himself uh, as a major threat at 145 pounds. We knew he was a major threat anyway because Edson Barboza is a dangerous individual. But he got in there with Macwan Amerkani. By the way, I had a shocking week for picks this week. Um, I backed Macwan. I thought Macwan maybe had an ace up his sleeve and would close the distance and maybe be a bit stronger at the weight than Edson Barboza. But nope. Barboza was just just a cut above for the whole fight. Dominated the fight. The scorecards were a little bit all over the place. We had a 30-26. We had a 30-27. And then we had a 29-28. So uh, obviously the viewing angles must have been slightly different on each of those three judges' chairs because uh, the scorecards were a little bit all over the place. But I don't think there was any argument over the winner. Edson Barboza getting the unanimous decision win. And again, doing the right thing. Getting on the microphone. Looking straight down the barrel of the camera and saying, I am ready to be a champion. I think all the years he spent at lightweight, he was there or thereabouts without ever quite making that final, that final uh, leap to become a number one contender, to become a, a legit world title contender at 155 pounds. Maybe featherweight is the division for him. He seems to be, um, he seems to be okay at the weight. That was always my complaint or concern. Um, Cause he always looked really lean at, at lightweight, to be honest, but he looks super lean at featherweight, but it's working for him. Good win over Macwan. What did you make of that, Sandu? Yeah, it kind of went how I expected, to be honest with you. I was picking Edson Barboza going into this fight, and uh, we mentioned it last week. Macwan Amerkani has been great to us. We've covered his career on the European circuit, but I just felt like competition-wise, Edson Barboza being an elite striker was going to have enough in his locker to withstand any pressure on the ground, any grappling, any wrestling, any submission attempts, McMahon would uh, perhaps, you know, utilize. And that's exactly how it went down, man. Um, basically, you know, Edson dropped him a few times and it was a one-sided performance. It was a, a one-sided victory. And if you, again, we spoke about this last week, but looking at his resume, okay, look, he lost to Justin Gaethje via knockout. <laughs> Justin Gaethje is the interim lightweight champion about to fight for the Undisputed Championship, right? And then he has two split decision losses to Paul Felder and Dan Ige, which you could have easily have scored in his favor. Right, so he could have easily been. We could we could be talking about Edson Barboza riding a, a three fight win streak right now. All right, but we're talking about him getting his first win at featherweight, and I thought it was fantastic. You know, like you said, just not calling anyone out specifically, but but basically making a statement to say, hey, look, this is me at featherweight. This is what you're going to get from me, and I'm coming for that title. I don't know how many fights it's going to take. I don't know who I have to fight, but I'm here, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to make a run, and it was great. This is exactly what we've been waiting for for a very long time to see Edson Barboza put it all together. And I'm excited to see what he can do at featherweight now. Yeah, and taking a look at the uh, the featherweight rankings, it is he must be like a kid in a sweet shop right now that the uh, Sean Shelby taking a look at the, the different options here. I mean, it is probably the probably my favourite division in the UFC right now. Like Every fight is an absolute banger. And initially I was thinking, okay... Edson needs to work his way up the rankings. Maybe you could do the rematch with Dan Ige. 
Maybe you do Shane Burgos, which would be a fun stylistic matchup. Or maybe you look a bit further up. Josh Emmett would be a fun fight. The fight I want to see, I want to see Edson Barbosa versus Yair Rodriguez. That is the fight I want to see. Rodriguez is currently out injured, so that isn't going to happen for a while. Um, but Barboza, I think, he's only ranked 14 right now. He's going to move up a little bit, I would imagine, with that win, but not not hugely because he was face, facing unranked opposition. But even though he's he's sort of double figures ranked, I think he's a top top five, top six featherweight. I really do. So I would pitch him in with one of them, whether it's Zabit, whether it's Rodriguez, whether it's Calvin Cater, or maybe just outside with Josh Emmett. I'd give him one of those guys and give him a chance to sort of burst onto the scene because he's in that veteran stage of his career. Um, and I think if he's going to become a serious contender, I would fast track him up, give him one of those top guys, see how he does. If he wins, boom, you've got yourself a really exciting new contender to go in there with your your likes of Volkanovski. I mean, Volkanovski, he's big, strong for the weight class. Um, Very sort of uh, heavy on his front foot. Imagine that against someone like Edson Barboza just looking to completely destroy that front leg. So that would be a really interesting stylistic matchup if it ever happened further down the line. But so many permutations. I mean, you could literally close your eyes and pull a name out of a hat and you'd have a great matchup. I mean, what would be your pick? If you could could match make Edson's next fight, what would you go with? No wrong answers, by the way. No, there are no wrong answers. And I love all the suggestions that you've made so far, Simon. I guess the only other one I may want to throw into the mix is perhaps the loser of this weekend's main event. Bran Ortega versus Chan Sung Young, right? If he fights the loser, that person is still going to be ranked ahead of him in the official UFC rankings. Is coming off a high-profile fight. Uh, obviously, you have to. De- it depends on you know in what manner the loss comes. I mean, obviously, we d- you don't want to want someone to be out for like six months or nine months with a, a severe injury or something like that. But that might be something I, I-, I would buy into. Is is Edson Barboza fighting the loser, and then that kind of helps him, you know, crack into the top ten of the featherweight division. Yeah, I mean, as I say, there's options galore, and we will talk more about that that main event fight coming up this weekend a bit later on in the show. Let's just run down the rest of this this fight card. Marching Tabura um, beating Ben Rothwell. Unanimous decision, which is how Marcin Tabura wins his fights these days. That was his fifth straight decision win. He's not on a five-fight win streak. He's lost a few in and, in, in, in and among the group. But each of his last five wins have all come on the scorecards. He arrived in the UFC as a finisher, but he's having to go to the scorecards and... Uh, Bit of a tricky, tricky uh, assignment against Big Ben. Got the job done. The one I did want to talk about, Drikas Duplessis versus Marcus Perez. Great face-off uh, ahead of fight night with Perez donning the Joker face paint. But uh, anybody who's seen Drikas Duplessis fight for KSW when he was their welterweight champion or um, for EFC when he was their middleweight and welterweight champion will know this is a really exciting fighter and uh, a great addition to the UFC's 185-pound division. Looked a little bit nervous, I thought, early on. And he, he kind of admitted to a few a few nerves, but he says he always fights nervous. But he looked a little bit a little bit twitchy in the early going against a very confident-looking Marcus Perez. But uh, ended up landing perfectly placed little left hook on the side of Perez's dome. And that was it. Three minutes, 22 seconds. First round knockout victory 
for Stillnox Drickus Duplessis. Interesting addition to the division, Sandu. He is, and I'm looking at his resume and kind of his vital statistics, so to speak. He's 26. He's at the perfect age. He's got great um, experience. You mentioned KSW, but prior to that, he was kind of like the the face of EFC in South Africa. And we, I don't think we've actually had anyone specifically from South Africa. We've obviously had a an explosion of talent emerging from Africa, the continent. But South Africa specifically, I don't think we've had anyone break into the UFC. And so maybe he can be that guy. And he looked great. Uh, obviously got the, the, the win in emphatic fashion. No laughing matter here, Simon, for Marcus Perez, who dressed up as the, the Joker with the face paint at the Wayans for the second time in a row. But man, I like um, Drickus Duplessis. Uh, I think he looked great in the cage. He held, you know, you know, held himself in good regard in the post-fight interview with Dan Hardy, and yeah, I'm excited to see, you know, what he can do. And like I said, he's at the perfect age; he's 26, so he's either in his prime or about to enter his prime. So I'm all for it. Yeah, I think the, I think there might have been a couple of South Africans. Is that the, the, I think there was a heavyweight whose name escapes me, but I do remember Gareth McClellan um, had a big old, ah, yes. had a big old beard on him. I remember he did a couple of shows. Over in Europe, I think we met him in Rotterdam, if I remember rightly. I think uh, I think he fought in Rotterdam um, at the Overy Marlowski fight, but um, he actually has a win over Drikus Duplessis actually from way way earlier in, uh, in 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 Duplessis' career back in 2014. But um, yeah, no, McLaren had a had a where are we? One, two, three, four, five fight run in the UFC. And he went one and four. Uh, in that run he fought in Krakow Dublin Rotterdam so I was at all of those so um, yeah he only went one and four but I think Duplessis has got a little bit more about him I think uh, if if you can find it online look up his fight with uh, oh crikey who, who was it he fought he had an absolute war in KSW he had two absolute wars in KSW with Roberto Soldic um, Croatian welterweight champion one of the pound for pound hardest hitting fighters in the world um and he abs- he went back and forth with him in a wild wild fight uh in 2018 and not and TKO'd him uh and then in the rematch he got knocked out by uh, by Soldich but those two fights were both absolutely brilliant well worth checking those out but since that loss to Soldich he's bounced back he's got three in a row third of which being that win over Marcus Perez this weekend and uh, talking to the media afterwards he said that you know he's he felt like he had like the weight of 40 million people on his shoulders going in there and uh, it felt like South Africa were in the Rugby World Cup final all over again that's that's the sort of that's the that's the buzz that he felt from back home in South Africa so uh, it's great to have people from different parts of the world getting success and being in the UFC Obviously, the United States is the dominant nation. That is where that is where the UFC is based, and all the rest of it. But for it to be a truly international sport, we need stars from all over the world. And Drukas Duplessis undoubtedly is the star from South Africa, and it'll be really fun to watch his progression in the UFC. Someone else who's going to be a lot of fun to watch progress is one of our own, Sandy. Tom Aspinall got the job done in quick fashion, uh, finishing Alan Baldo in. 95 seconds TKO and wasn't happy with his performance. You get you absolutely dust a guy 
in 95 seconds in the UFC in your second perform in, in, in your second ever performance in the octagon and you declare yourself not that not not that impressed I like that I like I like that I mean this is a guy who used to be used to be a sparring partner for for Tyson Fury trains up at team Calbon with uh, Darren Till Mike Grundy under under Colin Heron up there um he looks like he might go away if he builds himself up nicely and he he doesn't strike me as someone who's in a mad rush I think he wants to just progress and he he made some interesting call outs as well uh, he called out Chris Dorcas who got a really good win on the undercard and uh Sergey Spivak who he called out after his previous fight and was due to face this weekend but I think Spivak got covid and they drafted him uh, Baldo but Aspinall Everyone loves a heavyweight, Sandu, and we haven't had a British heavyweight in in uh, in the UFC to really, really go at the big boys. And this, you know, Tom might just be the guy. Yeah, and like you said, you know, his twenty twenty is off to a flyer. To get two back to back wins in the UFC, both being finishes, you know, you couldn't ask for a better start to your UFC run. And like you said, we haven't had a British heavyweight. Forget a champion. Just having a legitimate British heavyweight that we could all get behind, that that we think's got all the tools to to have a real good go at the top guys. I don't think he's there just yet, but so far so good. And it, it was a good night for, for the Brits in general. And I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about Tom Brees' um, fight in a second. But Tom Aspinall getting a slot on the main card on a fight night card. Good opposition, obviously, you know, last minute change, and yeah, I, th- I think the, the stop, the stoppage itself was a little bit. Um, it was uh, it, it, he, he he got a little, I guess, lucky. I don't, I don't say lucky. I mean, he was dominating, but a lot of those strikes were hitting the shoulder, right? So I think if he looks back on the tape, perhaps he can start to because who knows, a different referee may kind of ask him to continue, and you know, you're just kind of hitting you know shoulders and arms and, and all the rest of it so maybe he can be um a little bit critical when, when reflecting and, and think to himself well maybe i should have postured up a little bit and have been a been a little bit more accurate with where i was actually throwing all of these strikes uh, aiming for the head a bit more and, and all the rest of it but look that is just being you know i'm just picking nits now at this stage right it was a good performance another victory unscathed and let's see if he can try maybe squeeze one more in before the end of the year or get uh 2021 off to a start pretty early but yeah someone to, to be excited about is tom aspinan he's in a he's in a great gym slash camp at team Carbon. those guys are certainly making a lot of noise led at the front by darren till yeah definitely and i'm as i say looking forward to seeing just how the ufc match him up i really like the uh the call out of chris dorcas who who fought on the undercard. Just to wrap up the main card, uh, Ilya Tapuria, former Cage Warriors title challenger, uh, put on a really good performance on his debut against Yusuf Zalau, who I like a lot. Um, but Tapuria just used his grappling really, really well, dominated things on the mat, couldn't get the subs. Zalau was pretty pretty uh, scrambly off his back and did, did a pretty good job to keep himself out of uh, fight-ending trouble. But Tapuria getting a good win on his UFC debut. But the prelims delivered some good stuff as well. We've started the night before decisions. Tagir Ulanbekov from Khabib Nurmagomedov's team uh, got a win in the first fight of the night. Tracy Cortez picking up another win. Uh, Giga Chikadze, really entertaining win over o- Omar Morales. 
And then Tony Kelly versus Ali El Kaisi picking up the uh, the unanimous decision there, Tony Kelly. But then we had three fights that delivered three superb finishes. What we'll do, we'll start with the feature prelim and work down. So let's talk about Tom Breeze. Tom Breeze, and I think Paul Felder referenced it actually during his walkout. Breeze is, is a guy who, I mean, we, we you know we, we know him very well, having followed him on the way up. He looked the real deal at welterweight, and we thought, "Wow, this is someone who looks like he's got everything in the in 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 the uh, the tool bag to go all the way." Um, he was training at TriStar under the tutelage of uh, Firas Sahabi, George training with George Saint Pierre, and it looked like he was in the right place. Everything was going well, and then he just seemed to hit a wall. Um, had some had some. Uh, had some personal issues, some mental issues, uh, some really late withdrawals from fights. I remember, I think there was a fight in London where he pulled out on the literally minutes before the fight or hours before the fight, um, had 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 issues before the fight, and you wondered where his career would go. And he kind of he kind of dropped off the radar a little bit. We didn't see him at all in 2019. He'd already made a good debut at middleweight. He moved up to middleweight, looked really good against Dan Kelly, and then we didn't see him, and we're like. What's happening with Tom Breeze? And we knew he was doing a lot of grappling, and we knew he, he, he was a he's a major figure at Team Renegade uh, in Birmingham with the Edwards brothers. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was kind of weird because he just seemed to fall off the radar. He came back and got beat by Brendan Allen. It was like, oh blimey, okay, what's happening? You know, this isn't this isn't the, this isn't the same guy. But then he came back this weekend against KB Buller, who was making his. UFC debut, um, and Tom was just levels, levels above KB Buller, who came in undefeated, uh, finished him with ease, 103 seconds, TKO finish, job done. When Tom's on, I think he's he's capable of being a top 10 middleweight. I, I, I said this about him as a welterweight, I'm saying it about him as a middleweight now as well. I genuinely believe at his best... When he's on his game, when he's fit and he's firing and he's doing things the way that he can, he is a top 10 level UFC middleweight. He's just got to start putting those wins together now, Sandu. Absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head. There's levels to this, Simon. And we we saw, when you see so many fights for as long as we have, it doesn't take much of, of an eye test for us to figure out, ooh, that's someone that's good. Or that's someone that's a top 10. That's someone that's elite. That's someone that can go all the way, maybe become a champion. Look how much we're talking about Hamza right now. We were we were talking about Israel Adesanya after his very first performance in the UFC octagon. And we were like, wow, this someone that can go all the way here. Tom Breeze, like you said, it's if he can maintain this attitude at this level and fight consistently um, and... Just figure out what he needs to to do to make sure his mental health is is all good. He can legitimately be a threat in the weight class, and this is why I picked him to 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 beat KB Buller last week. I just had a feeling that with his experience, and even though he hasn't been fighting Team Renegade and, and that group of guys, and and what they probably have, you know, what they're probably doing on a on a day to day, week to week, month to month basis. Every t- even though he hasn't fought you know that much over the last four years, he's had like what, I think four fights in four years, but we knew that if he can put it all together, he's going to give us something special, and that's what he did on Saturday night. It was an absolute clinic for for as short as a fight was, 
it was the jab was beautiful. He he gets the gets the finish, comes out unscathed. And again, like I said, same thing with Tom Aspinall. It's like try and get some momentum going. See if you can get another one booked in by the end of the year. You know, you're not getting any younger. You you've already had so much time out of the cage, and you're 29 now. It's like it's now or never. It, it, you know, it feels like he's he's got the the full package, and he's not cutting down to 170 pounds anymore. So he looks healthy. He looks fully replenished. And uh, and looks on point. I think middle middleweight's perfect for him. And I, I I just want to see how far his talent can go now. I want to see him fight the top ten middleweights in the world. Maybe someone like a Chris Weidman could be someone he could try and like aim for in twenty twenty one, just to kind of see where he is in terms of a litmus test. Similar kind of I guess fighting style between those those two. Um, but yeah, it's exciting stuff. I'm happy to see him get a, a win and I can't wait to see what happens next for him either. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's so weird, isn't it? We're talking about a guy whose career is kind of, you know, he's kind of at the crossroads. Which way is, is his career going to go? He's 12 and 2, Sandu. He's yeah. 12 and 2 and only one of his wins went to the scorecards. Everything else he's finished. Um, when he's on, he is very, very, very good. And I just think... I think the key probably is uh, activity. I think keep him fighting frequently. You know, I think he's at that stage in his career now where I think if he's fighting every three months, I think that's perfect. Um, assuming he doesn't come, you know, he, he comes out unscathed, which he would have done this weekend. Um, get him back in there within the next three months. If he can come back earlier than that, fantastic. Squeeze one more in before the end of 2020. Brilliant. That would be awesome. Um but uh, 2021 could be a big year for Tom Breeze if he can just build a little bit of momentum. And uh, eventually, I know people within the sport, you know, you just did a way that someone like Paul Felder was waxing lyrical about him. I mean, obviously Dan Hardy knows all about him, but Dan Hardy is also a Brit. He's better connected with the fighters in the UK. So you would expect him to have more info and more more opinion on him. But for someone like Felder to be so, so um, effusive in his praise... I think speaks a lot to the potential of, of Tom Breeze. So we have our fingers crossed that um, any any problems Breeze did have in his career are now behind him and we get to see the very best of Tom Breeze in the rest of 2020 and beyond. But that wasn't the only knockout on the prelims. Uh, Chris Dorcas against Rodrigo Nascimento. Uh, Dorcas, uh, I think, was all due to fight for the CFFC heavyweight belt and then got signed to the UFC. Um, not the biggest heavyweight. I think he weighed in like 228 or something against a big, big Brazilian with a great submission record in Rodrigo Nascimento. And Dorcas lit him up like a Christmas tree. It's outstanding performance. And, uh, the, you know, the Philadelphia man looked really good, Sandu. He did. Um, I'm not going to lie. That was kind of following what we're basically going to talk about next time, which is arguably the greatest knockout in UFC history. And so I was smack dab in the middle of my BT Sports shift handling the, 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 the most sensational viral video we've had in this sport in a long time. Perhaps not since either Conor McGregor's shoulder attack on Cowboy Cerrone and prior to that perhaps the Jorge Masvidal knockout of Ben Askren last year. But if you, if you, want, if you want to ask me, Sandu, can you describe how Chris Dorcas knocked out Rodrigo Nascimento, I could not tell you because it's almost wiped clean of my memory. I remember posting the finish on my BT Sport shift. So it's it's on the BT Sport Twitter timeline. 
but I do not remember it because I was still living in a dream world of what Joaquin Buckley did to Impa Kasanganai. And so I want to be brutally honest with you and our listeners that that finish from Dorcas is completely wiped from my memory. I haven't seen it again. I, I do remember, like I said, I do remember posting the finish and I'm, I'm happy for him that he got the win. But I couldn't tell you how the fight went. Oh, that is, seriously. I mean, like, if, if if the Buckley finish hadn't happened before it, you'd be like, wow, Dorcas is really good. He's got great hands, fast hands for a heavyweight. Nascimento, uh, really, really good on the ground. He takes people down and just chokes them. Dorcas went out there and just lit him up, finished him. Great performance. Well done. Let's see him in there with someone like Tom Aspinall next. That would be great. But yeah, it was a bit after the Lord Mayor's show, wasn't it? Because, I mean, Dorcas could have turned up riding a, a unicorn and, you know, firing bazookas into the sky and people wouldn't have noticed because they were still buzzing from uh, Joachim Buckley's incredible, incredible finish of Impa Kasangani. Now, Kasangani came through the Contender Series and he's a solid middleweight. You know, he's 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 got all the physical gifts. He's good technically. He's a good, solid, up-and-coming middleweight fighter. And Buckley, another good, solid, up-and-coming middleweight fighter, produced something that I don't think... I'm trying to think of anything stylistic-wise that I've seen that comes close. I remember um, when Mark Diacasey scored a massive knockout of Timu Pakalan. He hit him with a right hand and Pakalan fell down like a tree. But before that, um, he hit him with like a two-touch spinning back kick. That was the closest thing I've seen in terms of technique uh, to something connecting. But this was just off the charts. I mean, he threw the left high kick to the head. Kasanganai did a great job of blocking it, decided I'm going to keep hold of his ankle here. And all of a sudden, bang, straight out of the middle. And it wasn't one of those, you know, sometimes you get these knockouts where it connects almost like a cricket bat hitting a ball. Um, and you just get that that sort of clean thwack. And then the guy just goes down. This wasn't, this foot just went straight through his head. You know what I mean? It, it wasn't like a, a knockout where it goes across the chin. It was bang, literally straight through the front of it. It was, it was a brutal knockout. And um, obviously that's one of the, you know, that's one of the things that, that that makes this sport a spectacular and b pretty scary at times because the way he went down was pretty terrifying. You know, the way, when you see someone's eyes roll back like that and they just completely lock up and they hit the deck, the immediate well, there's two thoughts go through your mind: one, wow, what a knockout, and two, please let this man get up quickly because you know you don't you don't want to see someone in an extended uh, period of unconsciousness after something like that thankfully Kasanganai was brought round was up on a stall within 30, 30 seconds to a minute after that everything was okay but my goodness gracious me what a knockout sandu i mean we'll go on and talk about our favorite knockouts of all time but i mean that's got to have knockout of the year signed sealed wrapped up posting the trophy now Surely nothing's going to beat that. Never say never, Simon, but I highly doubt that with the remaining months we have in 2020, anything's going to top it. And you know what's crazy? Uh, Mamed Khalidov delivered an incredible uh, knockout at KSW, knocking out Scott Askham. 
um, with 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 a, with a scissor kick, up front kick, and you know that was spectacular. We thought, well, that's that nothing's going to top that this weekend, right? And then all of a sudden, Jarkin Buckley does this. I mean, I clipped it and I posted it onto the BT Sport Twitter account, and I knew instantly, instantly, hundreds, thousands of retweets within minutes. I'm like, right, we've got a big hit on our hands here. I just checked this morning that video, which is geo-locked to the UK and Ireland. So we're talking about, you know, globally, a very small portion of people that could actually view this video. It has a million plus views, which is bonkers. The UFC have come out through uh, media reports and through some other journalists, and I'm sure a few have reported on this by now. It's their most retweeted video ever, ever, period. So you're thinking about Ronda Rousey, Conor McGregor, all these big stars, Jorge Masvidal, and what you did to Ben Askren last week, uh, last year. This isn't a pay-per-view. This is not a main card fighter. This is not a household name. It's the it's how spectacular that this knockout was. The technique, the impact, that it just caught the imagination. It's something we haven't seen before. That has caught the imagination of people that are watching it again and again and sharing it with their mates. It broke all social media records for the UFC. It did wonders for, for, for my shift on Saturday night for BT Sport. And it's given Joachim Buckley a crap load of new social media followers. He's the talk of the town. He It's going to be interesting to see how he handles all this newfound fame. And it's basically, you know, in a nutshell, the absolute best that this sport can offer. Elite athletes producing something out of this world on the biggest stage, which is fighting for the UFC. And yeah, it's just we're still talking about it. We're not going to stop talking about it for a while. I don't think it's, yeah, like, like we've already spoken about it. I think that's the knockout of the year wrapped up and it's, it's, it's uh, if people want to say that is their either favorite or that is the greatest knockout in UFC history. I have absolutely no problem with that whatsoever. I, I don't I don't even know if I have an, an all-time favorite or I don't even know if I have like in my mind what number 1 is for me. But if 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 you were to tell me make a list of 10, this would be in that list of 10. Like you know, and, and maybe this is a great segue in talking about some great knockouts. Like when I think of great knockouts, I think of Holly Holm doing what she did to Ronda Rousey, right? Conor McGregor knocking out Jose Aldo in 13 seconds. Anderson Silva upkicks Vitor Belfort. The fastest knockout in UFC history, Jorge Masvidal doing what he did to Ben Askren, right? Um, I was there when Francis Ngannou gave Alistair Overeem the uppercut from hell, which was just one of the most devastating knockouts I've ever seen. Um, and then I think... This is probably, if you had to put a gun to my head and ask me, Sandor, what's your number one? I I think it's going to be Yair Rodriguez with literally seconds to go in a five-round main event doing a reverse up elbow, knocking out Chan Sung Young, the Korean zombie, on the 25th anniversary show for the UFC, right? But again, like, you know, take your pick, fill your boots. There's so many great knockouts to choose from. And this now, Joachim Buckley's spinning back kick knockout in Pakasanganai is absolutely in the mix. Yeah, 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 it absolutely is in the mix. Funnily enough, my favourite UFC knockout of all time 
was one that you hadn't mentioned. Um, and uh, it was, for me, the most beautiful... It, you know, martial arts can be a brutal sport at times, and uh, but it can also be beautiful. And this particular knockout was a combination of both. Um, it was Edson Barboza versus Terry Etim. The wheel kick knockout, the way it connected, the way Etim fell, everything about it was... It was like something out of a video game. I, I can't... I think it was the most perfectly timed, perfectly placed, most visually incredible knockout I've ever seen. I think that, for me, is my number one. Just the way the whole thing looked. Now, there are other incredible knockouts. I mean, one that probably won't be at the top of anybody's list, but is one of my favourites. Rashad Evans knocking out Chuck Liddell. Um, they basically went toe-to-toe. Liddell was loading up on shots. He had uh, Rashad Evans backed up against the cage. He threw a shot. Rashad threw one much, much, much faster and laid him out like a patio. Just absolutely crumpled him. Huge KO. In terms of one-punch knockouts, that one's right up there. You mentioned Masvidal with the flying knee. You mentioned Anderson Silva. Eve Edwards on Josh Thompson from way back. Um, Spectacular flying kick knockout. Um... And uh, another one, which isn't a UFC knockout, but you can't talk knockouts without mentioning Mirko Krokop. Um, and you could just pick anything out of his highlight reel. But of course, the one that really stands out is the head kick knockout of Vanderlei Silva in Pride. That, for me, is right up there with the greatest knockouts in mixed martial arts history. But for me, I think, just from the pure aesthetic of it, Edson Barboza on Terry Etting remains remains my number one. But Buckley... If you're doing, if you're doing the uh, that that highlight reel edit that the UFC play to the Who's Bubba O'Reilly at the start of every show uh, for people in the arena, when they do the next iteration of that, because they like to refresh it, bring it up to date, put the up to date fighters in there as well as some of the historic stuff, you guarantee that Jurgen Buckley knockout is going to make that highlight reel. And that will be a part of history when the fans are eventually allowed back in and get to watch UFC fights live from the arena. I will be amazed if Joachim Buckley's incredible knockout from last weekend isn't a part of that infamous, legendary Bubba O'Reilly uh, montage. One thing to mention, you said, uh, and it's, it's a very good point. How will Buckley react to this? You know, he's getting he's getting all the plaudits but he's still very very young in his UFC career right and he might he's gonna have to be careful not to end up with what I would call John Barnes syndrome now for anybody who uh, is a fan of of soccer and a long-time fan of soccer they might have an idea what I'm going to talk about but there is an English soccer player called John Barnes absolutely probably one of the most talented players to ever wear a shirt for England, although he didn't always get the credit he deserved. And one of the reasons why was just the sheer level of expectation that he placed on himself after a goal he scored against Brazil in the Maracanã Stadium back in 1984, I think it was, 1984 and 1985, picked up the ball inside his own half and basically scored a goal that previously you would only see from a Brazilian in Brazil picked up the ball and literally went through the entire Brazilian back line, drew the goalkeeper and scored. One of the greatest goals ever scored in an England shirt. And it was relatively young in John Barnes's England career. 
And the problem with that was, fantastic goal. That's something something to uh, sort of tuck away in, in the uh, in the history books. But every time he pulled on an England shirt after that, he was expected to reproduce that. And you can't reproduce a perfect goal. And I think because he never could and never did, he got a, that and some of the underlying racism that was knocking around the England fan base back in the 80s meant that he, he never really got a fair shake from, from, from the England or from sections of the England fans. And when he played for Liverpool, he was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. One of the best players in Europe at the time. But when he played for England, there was this weight of expectation on him. And it was because of that goal, because of that one moment of absolute brilliance. And he just couldn't reproduce it because you just can't. And I think Joachim Buckley, the best thing for him is to think, well, I'm not going to beat that. So I'm just going to concentrate on doing what I'm doing. The knockouts will come if I keep fighting the way I fight. But he shouldn't He shouldn't try and just live up to the past glories and and, lab- and, and sort of labour too much on what he's done. That's going to be in the record books for him forever. And as I say, he's going to be immortalised in highlight reels for the rest of his career as a result of it. And he's hopefully going to earn a few, a few dollars as a result of it. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. People like Mirko Krokop were able to reproduce their knockouts throughout their career. Um, other people, they're, they're one-hit wonders, you know. We'll see how Joachim Buckley does. But boy, oh boy, what a knockout. What an incredible, incredible moment on a really fun show, Sandu. You know, we were saying at the top of the show, solid card on paper, but it delivered so many good finishes. It was great. Yeah, I think it was probably the card of the year so far. Uh, we've got a few more left. Um, but I, I can't remember or I can't, I mean, I have to kind of look back properly and analyze each card and what happened and all the rest of it. But I just don't, and maybe it's just been a while, you know, sometimes you get into the grind of watching fight cards, you know, week in, week out. But I just can't remember the last time I, I finished a shift and uh, finished watching the last fight. I thought, wow, from top to bottom, pretty much that was about as good as it gets. Uh, quick final note on uh, on the Buckley KO, Simon. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the Edson Barboza Terry Etem uh, knockout. That's also I, I, for me. It's probably that or the Yair Rodriguez um, up elbow. But wasn't it poetic that Barboza ended up being on the same card where Buckley delivers this incredible knockout? It's almost like a passing of the baton. And talking about trying to replicate something, that's how hard it is in this sport. Barboza hasn't been able to replicate something like that. And that was a long, long, long time ago. And even just the technique of Kasung and I, you know, catching his foot to give Buckley, you know, the opportunity to to use that as momentum to spin around and, and deliver that kick. It's just, it's a one in a million situation. And, and, it, and he was able to pull it off and it worked out for him. But it's unlikely we're going to see anything like that, either from him or anyone else. But we'll see what happens. But yeah. I hope he's able to handle this um, in the coming. I'm sure his the media requests, the footage, it's going to be doing the rounds for a long, long, long. Every, put it this way: every time Edson Barboza fights, every single time, fight week from the UFC, from broadcast partners, from fans. What what are they all using? They're using videos and gifts of that Terry Etim knockout to remind people of. One of the fighters competing this weekend, i.e. Edson Barboza. And Joachim Buckley is going to get the exact same treatment. Every time he fights, his social media feed is going to be full of people reminding him and everyone else of what he did 
to Impa Kasanganai. So what a, what a great a great night of fights. It really was. Uh, I, I was just, you know, giddy uh, as can be at the end of that shift. It was so great. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a long shift for me because that that was at the end of a I'd already had a fight night before then. We had uh, Bellator made history. Uh we, we we touched upon it on last week's show. They made history the first major MMA event to be held in Paris, France. They lifted the ban earlier in the year. Bellator stole a march on the rest of the uh the rest of the world and got that first historic show. All kudos to them, to David Green, who heads up the European team, to Scott Coker, who heads up Bellator overall. And they put on a, a dual card show. I'll be honest, the action was a little bit hit and miss. We had some good performances. We had some not so good performances. In the good performances category, Mads Bunnell, former UFC bantamweight, former Cage Warriors, uh, sorry, featherweight. Mads Bunnell, former featherweight champion in Cage Warriors, made his Bellator debut, got himself a really solid first round TKO finish over Darko Banovich. Alan Omer, who I've watched Alan Omer. Alan Omer might have been on the very first fight card I ever covered um, at Bama. First Bama show I ever covered, which was Bama 6 or Bama 7. I think Alan Omer was on that card. Um, he beat Ryan Scope and he beat him well. Uh, Ryan Scope just didn't look himself at all. I don't know whether there was something wrong, whether he was ill, whether he'd had problems in the warm-up, whether he was injured. I don't know what it was. Or maybe he just wasn't. He just wasn't on Omer's level. I don't know. He didn't look right to me. Omer went out there and did a number on him. Great first round finish for Alan Omer. And another outstanding performance, Oliver Enkamp, um, who said he'd spent the week in quarantine binge watching Cobra. Um, he, he, he doesn't even talk about going for championships and all this sort of stuff. He is a quintessential martial artist. All he wants to achieve is growth. And development like if he happens to get a belt at the end of it happy days he'll be you know he'll enjoy it right but that's not why he's in the sport he's a really interesting character uh he walked out to you're the best around by joe esposito from the karate kid movies he stood at the top of the ramp and did the crane kick he did the whole thing and then he went out there and finished emmanuel dawa with a japanese necktie so it was great performance from him he was one of the outstanding performances of the night as was britain's own England's own Saul Rogers. Saul Rogers was the co-main event of the the later card, the Bellator Paris card. Uh, rear naked choke finish of Arby Mezhdov, um, who went into the fight with an identical record to Saul. Uh, competed on the European scene. Rogers just took him to the cleaners, finished him first round rear naked choke. He looked back to his best, and I know that he is absolutely itching to get his mitts on one of the top contenders at 145 pounds but one thing i want to show you i don't know if you've seen it sandu if not i think remind me at the end of this show i will, I will let you know and, and send it to you have you seen eve landu versus terry brazier you probably haven't seen the fight he beat terry brazier two-weight bama champion with a flying knee but eve landu this 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 fight was 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 billed as former paratrooper Terry Brazier versus former breakdancer Eve Landu. And Eve Landu did a bit of a breakdance on, on the ramp, went down to the cage, knocked out Terry Brazier with a flying knee in the first round. 
and then proceeded to do the single best celebratory dance I've ever seen after a fight in my life. It was insane. Um, it's on it's on the Bellator social media. You've got to check it out. It was mental. I've seen it. I have seen it. It was pretty, pretty damn good. <laughs> it was awesome. But um, so we had some but some performances like that. The two main events were a bit so-so, if I'm honest. Timothy Johnson did a great job to uh, to out-tough Czech Congo and spoil the party in the Bellator Paris main event. Um, and uh, the other main event, which was Bellator 248 earlier in the night, Michael Venom Page beat Ross Houston, former Cage Warriors champion, handed Houston his first career loss. But it wasn't a great fight. It wasn't a great fight. Page did not fight the way he normally fights. And after afterwards, he... Uh, he said that the canvas was really slippery. It meant he couldn't get enough purchase to to do some of the some of the uh, the high flying stuff that that uh, we used to see him from him. Uh, but Houston Houston gave him gave him a decent fight, and uh, he'll come back. and uh, I think he I think he'll be a solid addition to that welterweight division. But MVP getting the usual stick on social media. He's damned if he does, and he's damned if he doesn't. You know, if he knocks these people out, they all his opponents get called tomato cans, and if he doesn't then they they just basically tell Paige he's no good. So he can't win, can he? He absolutely can't win. The only thing that he can do is try and get himself back in there with Douglas Lima and avenge that loss. Because if he beats Douglas Lima, all the critics can shut up. Um, and he was doing all right against Douglas Lima in the first fight. And he made a mistake, left his chin out and got KO'd. That's what happens at the highest level of the game. But I don't know about you. I mean, I, it kind of... It kinda, dismays me where you see people just hammer a fighter just because they don't like them like for seemingly for no other reason they just don't like them. james gallagher gets it a lot right and and anyone who's met james gallagher will tell you that you know he's he's, he's a really decent guy he's a nice guy he's fun to talk to but he's got this reputation of as, as a conor a junior conor mcgregor and therefore everybody hates him it's i just don't buy into this stuff I just don't get it. I think it may just be a little bit of stigmatism with regards to being a Bellator fighter. I think a lot of people view Bellator in a way where if anyone's successful, well, the level of competition's lower or they're trying to be a copycat of someone that's far more popular in the UFC. And I guess that's just how you're going to, you know, that's what you're going to get from casual fans of the sport, you know, that perhaps only watch the UFC, aren't dedicated hardcore MMA fans that watch anything and everything in the sport. I mean, we had KSW this past weekend, better tour UFC. Um, and, and even if you don't watch it, you know, seeing clips on social media, you, you should be able to recognize, you know, great achievements in this sport, regardless of the banner that it's under. And it's going back to Buckley. You know, I mean, Michael Venom Page has had this his entire career. You know, he's set the standard so high with all the various highlight reel KOs that he's delivered. And I'm not sure if this is still the case, but for the longest time, his knockout of Cyborg, where he crushed his skull in, and his post-fight celebration, the whole Pokemon Go thing that he did in that particular situation, was that the most viewed video in Bellator YouTube history. Uh, I haven't checked lately to see what the, the latest is, but it's still up there, right? That's He, he knows you know, how to make moments go viral and if he wins a fight by decision it's like oh no you know the world's gonna end and for him it's like look since he lost Douglas Lima he's 
not lost a fight. He continues to win. He's getting better. And let's not also uh, forget that when other fighters are trying to figure out how to nullify what Michael brings to the to the cage, they're not going to exactly keep it standing, keep the chin open for him to, to knock them out. So as you get on in your career, people are going to start to figure out how best to fight you. Now, they may still not be able to beat you, but at least they perhaps save themselves from getting concussed, right? Um, so I don't think there's any shame in Michael Venom Page winning the way he did. And maybe there was a situation with the mat. Obviously, they're in a new country for the very first time and all the rest of it. But ultimately, all roads lead to hopefully him getting that rematch with uh, with Douglas Lima. En route to that Lima fight, I would love for them to figure out a way to do the Paul Daly rematch. Uh, hopefully, they can do that at some point in 2021. Hopefully, it's in the UK. And hopefully, it's with fans. Because unfortunately, everything surrounding their first fight being in Connecticut in the US, it it just did not feel right. It didn't work. And the fight itself wasn't great either. And they, I don't think either of them were happy with anything that came out of that particular fight and that particular performance. But I think the main thing coming out of uh, Bellator's experience from last week was A, they were in France for the very first time. First major MMA event to be held in France. Although UFC Fight Pass had some good fun on social media, um, I guess promoting a different show the night before that had a broadcast partnership with with, with Fight Pass. So, so that was good fun. Um, and I guess, and you tell me more about this, Simon, uh, because I wasn't really paying attention to it. But this was on BBC iPlayer. And we talked about it last week. What ended up being the end product on iPlayer? What was the reception? Did it work? And I guess, was there any supplementary support from BBC Sport in general with um, articles and any other coverage? Yeah, there was a... There was there was some preview stuff on there on on on, on the BBC website and um, there have been some references to 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 some of the previous Bellator fights. I think the James Gallagher fight previously was on there. Um, there was a World Coming Out Day uh, story that featured a host of athletes, including Liz Carmouche, um, who was obviously now a Bellator fighter, and um, our friend PC Carroll. I think did a preview for them. So so they had some preview stuff on there. But in terms of the in terms of the actual televised package, if you like, it was literally just a feed. It was literally just a feed, and um, <clears throat> it was because of the way the event was put together to satisfy the different broadcast partners and all the rest of it. And this is an ongoing thing with Bellator, anyway. But the way that the BBC had their slice of that pie meant that they just. The pacing was really bad because the first part of the show, the Bellator, basically the way the card was put together, you had Bellator 248, which was a four fight card headlined by MVP. So we had Mads Burnell um, and uh, we had uh, Oliver Enkamp. We had MVP at the top of the card and... Sorry, Alan Omo, Ryan Scope was the other fight on that card. Sorry. So we had those four fights at the start of the night. So that was at 4.30pm UK time. So when MVP walked to the cage, it was about half five, quarter to six in the evening UK time. Uh, not a bad time to watch a fight, I've got to be honest. Um, but the pacing between the fights was just so slow. And that I, I can only put down to the fact that they were debuting. That card was also live on CBS Sports Network in the US. And I think it, 
It's either the first or second time they've hosted a show. I think it's the second time they hosted a show on CBS Sports Network. I think the previous Milan show with Daly um, was uh, was 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 also a CBS Sports show. So I don't understand quite how it all ties together because the whole the whole thing just looked disjointed. We had lots of cutting away to just general arena shots while they were just seemingly doing nothing while the US was on an ad break. Because they'd just basically got this feed and put it live, they didn't have anything to put in the ad breaks because obviously BBC don't have ad breaks. So there was no mini featurettes or little 30-second hits you could put out. Or, you know, maybe that's something that they might need to look at for future ones. Maybe them and Better Talk can sit down and Better Talk and give them some 30, 60, 90-second uh, clips just rip them off the YouTube, you know, best knockout clips or highlight reel clips. Stick those in and just put them on a loop until, you, until you've until you got live broadcasting again and then cut back. Because there was a lot of sitting around. Um, and it reminded me a bit of some of my early morning stints covering Rising, where you'd have the prelims and then you'd have like an hour and a half interval in order to hit the start time for, the, for Fuji TV, for the main card in, in Japan. And this was kind of what we had. So we had the four fights from Bellator 248. Then we ran straight on into the prelims of Bellator Paris. So we had MVP. And then straight after that, we had Kieran Clark versus Jean Ndoye. Um, and then into the rest of the, the four fight prelims uh, of Bellator Paris. But by the time the, the prelims of Bellator Paris had finished... We had an hour and 45 minutes until the broadcast began for the two-fight main card, which was on Channel 5. So for, for, for a UK viewer's perspective, and probably for anybody who wanted to watch the entirety of the event, it was a really disjointed experience, and it's something that we've had with Bellator in the past. It's hard because they've got multiple broadcast partners who have multiple start times to hit. If BBC were just showing the whole card top to tail, they would still have had the same problem because the um, the US TV stuff would still needed to be dealt with. But I think the, the Bellator Paris part of the card was just being shown on the YouTube channel in America, Bellator's YouTube channel. So they could have just run straight on and not had that, that hour and a half, hour and 45 minute gap. Because the only reason for that was because those two fights were going on Channel 5 at 10pm. So we had to wait until then. So it was it was very disjointed. It meant that the pacing was like worse than like the worst Fox UFC pacing you can remember. Because some of those shows really dragged. This was probably the worst I can remember. Um, but some of the fights were really good. It's just, it's a shame that there was no momentum to the card. And as, a, as someone who... You know, we've watched literally hundreds upon hundreds of events. And the thing that really works, when a show's really cooking, you get a big moment and it's like, wow, this is incredible. Boom. Then we've got another fight. And then you've got another fight. And then you've got another fight. And it's just like layers and layers and layers and layers. And it just works. And like the excitement level goes up. And uh, about the best example of that was the UFC in Dublin, that infamous card where Conor McGregor uh, beat Diego Brandao. And it was, I think Paddy Houlihan won the first fight of the night. And then it just built and built and built and built. Now, if you'd have had really bad pacing, the atmosphere would have been 
I don't think would have been as good. But because it was relatively relatively quick pacing as well, because I think it was a fight pass card, if I remember, there was no there was no padding needed. It was like fight, then another fight, then another fight. And by the end of it, they were at fever pitch when, when Connor walked into the cage. This was the complete opposite of that. Um, and I don't know what the solution is um, other than showing the whole of an event on, on one broadcast platform. But it is very difficult when your prime your prime broadcast partner for, for the UK, which is Channel 5, they're, they're, you know it, it's a late-night TV product for them. So unless they line it all up to try and start at 10 o'clock, then it works. The other thing, of course, Sandu, they lost a few fights off the card, which would have obviously helped fill fill the gaps. They lost like, I think they lost two fights on the morning, the morning of, and I think they lost another one or two fights during the week. So it's hard. It's hard. It would have been better with those fights on, but um, this is Bellator and, 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 and the way that they put these things together. Um, the product isn't bad. It's just the way it's packaged is just a bit disjointed at times. Yeah, you're talking about a few fights falling out. The UFC have had that issue as well, you know, with with COVID tests and all the rest of it. And it just kind of made me think. So this weekend, we saw the conclusion of the NBA season. So the LA Lakers won the championship. And obviously, don't really need to or want to talk about that. But one of the interesting notes that came out of the end of this kind of run with the NBA being in a bubble in in, in Orlando, Florida... Uh, Disney World essentially and they're in the Disney campus they've been there for what three or four months now or something like that zero COVID tests zero which is just a remarkable feat given what's happening specifically in the USA and for all of these athletes and for the NBA uh, and everyone involved to have the due diligence to make sure everyone's you know following protocol and guidelines and for no one to test, test positive it just it just blew me away. So you know, kudos to them. But um, you know, other organisations and sports leagues where you know you're, you're you're taking your show to different countries and different cities, it's going to be a little bit more challenging. And so, when fights fall out, it's no surprise to me. It's just par for the course in the current climate. Yeah, it's tricky, and also particularly with the some of the events in um, in Milan and Cage Warriors as well. These events where they're in a market, they will quite often book multiple fighters from the same team. Makes sense, right? So, but it only needs one person within that group, whether it be a coach, uh, whether it be one of the fighters, whether it be, you know, someone else who's part of that team. It only needs one of that group to test positive and all of those fighters are out. And uh, we've had that, we've had that a couple of times. So it was... um, but yeah, I mean, good on Bellator for getting that show. Good on Bellator for getting that show up and running in Paris. They did a good job in Milan. They did a good job in Paris. I would love for them to do in Europe what they've done in America and basically set up camp somewhere. They're, they're using the Mohegan Sun in uh, in Uncasville, Connecticut. That is their fight sphere, as they call it. That is where they host their US shows. Why not do the same thing in the UK? You've got the the uh, the power of Viacom behind you. Just get a TV studio or, or or a production warehouse, kit it out, set the cage up, and just let that be the spot. You know, get it geared up for TV, and just leave it up. Have an always on 
um, arena ready to go. And and uh, it's something that Graham Bolland's actually talking about doing, actually having something like that for Cage Warriors. Um, a UK version of the UFC Apex, but not a UFC Apex. So it'll be like a Cage Warriors arena or something. Um, <clears throat> Bellator have got access to studio space, I would imagine, through Viacom. So why not give it a go? And then, you know, a large proportion of their European roster are based in the UK or within within shooting distance of the UK. Get it done. And uh, it might be a lot easier to do. But yeah, it's good seeing them back up and running. It's great seeing them up and running in Europe. It's just a shame that uh, we're not quite at that point yet where I can actually get back out there and be be cage side for those shows. But that will come. That will come eventually. But uh, And we've got Bellator on Thursday night as well, Sandu. Uh, Thursday night show, Bellator 249. Uh, Chris Cyborg, main event in that. Um, we've got Patricky Pitbull in the co-main event. Ricky Bandejas, Leandro Higo is on that main card. Um, but uh, that will be live on Sky Sports, the main card in the UK. Awesome. Um, we, I think we've spoken about this a little bit, but I'm curious to see how these Thursday nights play out long term. I think right now this is a good move for Bellator. Uh, being on Thursday nights means they're not going head-to-head with the UFC or any boxing or any other combat sport, basically. So they've got the, the entire night to themselves, number one. Number two, it means that things like their media day, which is essentially going to be, I guess, on a Monday or a Tuesday, and then their weigh-in day on, on a Wednesday, will get far more pickup and coverage from the media, especially the, the MMA media. So right now, I think it's all good. I think, again, long-term when the world gets back to normal and we're talking about trying to fill arenas with fans, I think Thursday nights are going to be a tough one because it's a work night. You're trying to get you know fans to buy tickets and, and you know come out for a night out, which involves drinking and, 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 a, and, a, and a fight card that's going to be six, seven hours long and you still have to go to work on a Friday morning. I know from my experience, having worked with the PFL, who you know have essentially tried to own Thursday nights in the US uh, in 2019, um, it's not easy and ultimately when the world gets back to normal the fans create the atmosphere they create the excitement for fights um, and also it's a revenue stream right ultimately for the organization and the promotion and that's how they kind of strike a lot of their deals when they go to these kind of you know casinos and and other venues as well is, is trying to kind of you know, do a split with regards to uh, ticket revenue and, and all the rest of it so yeah good that they're back again and they've got a momentum going, and they they got a proper schedule. Chris Cyborg's fighting this Thursday, man. I haven't seen a blip on my social media, so hopefully in the next couple of days uh, there's a lot more promotion done because it just hasn't come across my radar. And I know there's a lot going on, uh, a lot of fights and all the rest of it, but um, yeah, they they really need to do a little bit more uh, because I haven't seen much. But listen, Chris Cyborg fighting, I'm sure I'll figure out a way to tune in and watch that on on Thursday night. Definitely. That's uh, CBS Sports Network in the States. I don't know if you get CBS Sports Network in Canada. And if not, then I have absolutely no idea how you're going to get it. But um, yeah, she's fighting Arlene Blenko in the in the main event there on Thursday night. Before we hit this weekend's fight card, bring us up to speed on what's going on with Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier. We know that I think the last time we properly spoke about them, they were basically going off piste weren't they they were going off piste and they were going to set up their own charity boxing match at the three arena in dublin um with uh, money going to charity and uh, hot on the heels of that 
the UFC got around the negotiating table and have been trying to book them. What's the latest? Well, we only know as much as I guess the rest of the world knows right now. And that's basically paying attention to Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor's Twitter feed. And so about four days ago, so middle of last week, Dustin Poirier just hits up Conor McGregor and says, what's up? Right. So obviously, you know, they've had their back and forth with regards to a potential exhibition bout in Dublin on December 12th. Conor McGregor replies, hello, Dustin. I accepted the UFC offer to fight you, but told them it must happen in 2020. I'm ready for November 21st, given that card's recent injury issues, as well as any of the December dates, the 12th and the 19th. I'll also still donate the $500,000 to the Good Fight Foundation. So a few takeaways there. First of all, Conor McGregor, stand-up guy. He's going to donate to Dustin Poirier's uh, charity. And then I think there was a bit more back and forth following this where I guess him and Daniel Cormier are going to use the money to set up a center. Uh, which is going to involve MMA, wrestling, boxing and training and exercise for kids in their local community. So that's fantastic. And obviously, Connor's got the money, but to still to openly you know, share that information and make, make that donation is great. Great PR for him as well. And then obviously the exciting stuff is the fact that, yeah, he wants to fight before 2020 is up. And he may have not got his full season, Simon, but then I started to think, when we get fighters in the UFC that become champions and become real big stars, very rarely do they fight three times a year. We're, we're, we're actually blessed and lucky if they fight twice. It's typically just the once in a big you know, July 4th weekend or a, or a big you know, marquee pay-per-view weekend at the UFC trying to get one of their biggest stars on. And then so sometimes we get lucky and they fight twice in the same year and we'll take that all day long. So when Conor McGregor first announced his idea of having a, a season after a, quite a long hiatus where he was going to fight three times this year, I think we all got excited because we all knew that, okay, if Conor McGregor fights three times this year, it means business is going to pick up for the entire year and we're all going to be busy and Conor's going to be constantly in the news and all the rest of it, right? Obviously, we know what's happened with COVID. Don't want to kind of go into that again. But I just started to think to myself, if he does get this Dustin Poirier fight before 2020, happy days because then he would have fought twice in 2020 which is a lot more than most people would have expected in the first place and he he'd fight a top contender simon in dustin poirier and this for me if this fight actually happens this is going to give us a number one contender that can go on to fight the winner of khabib versus uh justin right we know that dustin poirier's first fight with khabib didn't go well right he lost but he's bounced back. He put on a great performance against Dan Hooker. And if he can beat Conor McGregor, who not only is one of the biggest stars, the biggest star this sport has ever produced, that pay-per-view would have a lot more eyeballs on it than the Dan Hooker fight did, number one. Number two, he'd be fighting and beating one of the, the highest-ranked fighters in the division. So what more would he need to then you know, demand a rematch against Khabib? And for Conor, all this talk about Manny Pacquiao, Diego Sanchez... People, obviously, I think, were able to stomach the fight with Cowboy Cerrone, kind of essentially saying to themselves, hey, look, Connor's coming back off this you know, long layoff. Let's give him a tune-up fight, give him a warm-up fight. That went resoundingly well for him. But ultimately, what everybody wants is to see him fight the best in the world and to fight his peers in their prime, highly ranked opponents. 
Dustin Poirier ticks all of those boxes. He beats Dustin Poirier, and then I don't think, I don't think anybody would have any um, doubts that he should be fighting for the title next. And then, yeah, then set up the Khabib rematch. Or if Justin Gaethje wins, set up a, a brand new matchup for the title, picture, for the title with uh, Gaethje and McGregor. So I love it. I'm all for it. Now, all we can really do is speculate, Simon. Will the UFC get the negotiations behind the scenes done with both these guys. I think the easy one's Dustin. This is a rematch. Dustin wants to get this one back. They fought once at featherweight. And the UFC, I'm sure, will love the fact that this is a rematch because we've talked about things that check boxes for the UFC and what kind of fights they like to promote, especially big ones. With a rematch, you've got an inbuilt storyline, there's history there and all the rest of it. It's Conor McGregor, though. And the, the public spat that he's had with Dana White through social media and interviews on Dana's side in the last couple of weeks... Can that be resolved? Can other parties behind the scenes for the UFC intervene and just get this deal and get this fight past the finish line? As we're recording, it's October 12th. There's been encouraging signs looking at social media of Conor McGregor where he's with uh, Owen Roddy and he's kind of you know hitting uh, the, the, the body work with him and hitting the pads and all the rest of it. So it looks like he's in gym and he's in camp and he's preparing. He looks in fantastic shape. We've talked about him shaving off his beard and shaving off his, his, his hair on his head. He's gone bald again. Is this a sign? Is he kind of almost shedding like a snake, shedding that skin? And this is a brand new iteration, a brand new version of Conor McGregor to, to finish 2020. I'm excited, but we need an official announcement. And so that's what we're waiting for right now. It's pure speculation. I think we're, we're hoping for the best here. We're, we're hoping for the best that these two will fight before 2020 is up. But I think we're also prepared for the worst as given how things in the fight game play out sometimes. Yeah, I think I think the key date here is probably going to be December 12th. Um, that is the date currently earmarked for the UFC's final pay-per-view of the year, UFC 256. Obviously, these things are to be confirmed, but that is currently uh, what we believe is the case. There is UFC 255 on November the 21st. That, I think, is a little bit too close. I think that might be a little bit too close. So I think if they're going to do a Connor pay-per-view, they're going to want to run up um, to just completely squeeze every drop of juice of promote. Well, of just out of the whole promotional run-up, get everybody in front of their screens for Connor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier. Now, the interesting dynamic here is the calendar. Not the schedule, but the calendar. It is the end of 2020. Um... And um, there's obviously the, the the situation with ESPN Plus, uh, people having subscriptions and all the rest of it. Do the UFC want to carry this fight over to 2021? Because it might have uh, a bigger impact on uh, signups with ESPN Plus. Is, e- is it ESPN Plus who want this fight? ESPN who want this fight in early 2021 for that reason? Um the counter argument to that is, well, if he fights in 2020 and wins, the next fight is going to be probably Khabib or Justin. So he's going to be fighting a massive fight in 2021 anyway. But it's a gamble. Connor, technically, officially, is retired. Dana White will tell you, every time you ask him about Connor, he will tell you, Connor McGregor is retired. That's what he says. No one actually believes that, but officially that is that's how things are. So what that means is Connor has a little bit of leverage here. Connor can just turn around and go, "I don't have to fight, guys. I've made all that. I've got all my Mayweather money. I don't need to fight. I'd quite like to fight. This is the guy I want to fight. 
And this is this is the obvious date. I mean, he said he could do November, but he also said December. Um, for me, if I'm the UFC, I just go path of least resistance. Get the deal done. Um, it will give Dustin Poirier the biggest payday of his career, which for one of the sports good guys would be an incredible thing. Even if the UFC aren't necessarily uh, on Conor McGregor's Christmas card list or vice versa, do it for Dustin Poirier. You know, look on the other side. This isn't a one. This isn't a coin with two two uh, two heads on it. It's a head and a tail. There's an A side and a B side. And um, Dustin Poirier is a pretty strong B side if you're talking about pulling power. But he's also in superb form and he deserves a big fight like this and he's a good guy in the sport I think it would be fantastic for him it would be fantastic for the people around him for the charity that he represents uh, and Connor's chucking half a million into the pot for that as well kudos to him I'd love to see that fight what better way to finish the year we had Connor at the start of the year against Donald Cowboy Cerrone kicking off 2020 pretty much uh, unfortunately Events beyond everybody's control meant that he didn't get his season. But if he can finish 2020 with a big fight, then I think that's as good as we can hope for. And I think uh, it would set things up beautifully for the UFC lightweight division in 2021. We've got Michael Chandler. We've got Tony Ferguson on the way back. You've got Dan Hooker on the way back. And then you've got Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor. Um, so... All of these guys are jockeying for position and you've got Gaethje and Khabib at the top who are going to fight for the belt. So let's 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 make this fight happen, please. Let's see it. Get it done. Little Christmas present for everybody out there. Conor McGregor before Christmas. Let's see it. And then it sets everything up perfectly, no matter what the result. If Dustin Poirier wins, you've got the option of a trilogy fight because there'll be one on one. Um, and obviously you've got the issue of the championship fight as well. And if Connor wins, obviously, then all bets are off. It's going to be uh, he's going to make a beeline for Khabib if he wins. So, I think I think this this could be huge for the UFC, even if they don't want to make this fight at this time. Get this fight done, and then all the riches will follow. That's kind of how I see it. Just get the fight done. I think. Yeah, uh, and I love the idea of Conor McGregor finishing the year as a, as a big pay per view attraction by the UFC, because. Like you said, when he, you know, when he fought, you know, Cowboy, it was kind of a statement. I'm back, um, and I'm going to do my season. And obviously, the world went upside down this year. But yeah, I'm just, uh, I guess, who knows? This time next week, when we record our our podcast, maybe we're talking about a fight being officially booked and and everything being you know signed, sealed, and delivered. That's all we can hope for. But the interesting thing right now is. Are those December dates, especially the 12th, as you mentioned? And I, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I think that'll be the five-year anniversary of Conor McGregor knocking out Jose Aldo on December 12th at UFC 194. So wouldn't that be a little uh, bit of uh, bit of, bit of poetic you know, a moment there for Conor to fight on that specific date, just given the history he has with December 12th? So that'll be interesting to see how it all plans out with, uh, with Dustin Poirier. But for me, just, just the fight itself... Forget all the bells and whistles that come along with the Conor McGregor fight and all the traffic. Just two guys in their prime, at lightweight. They've got history. They fought once before. I love it. Yeah, definitely. Great shout about the date as well. 
is it really five years? I was I was front row case side for that McGregor Aldo fight, and uh, the gasp that went around arena went, uh, went around the arena, and I remember looking over my shoulder at my colleagues at press row, and it was just open mouths everywhere you looked. It was it was absolutely stunning. To think that that was five years ago makes me feel incredibly old, um, because I am. But it's uh, but it's 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 incredible, and and I think there's still plenty more in the Conor McGregor story. Uh, it's basically, you know, this 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 is far from finished. I think, and he he's got plenty more to give, and hopefully, if things start to ease up in 2021, then uh, I would expect Conor McGregor to really get himself out there, front and centre. And be the guy leading the charge when the UFC does eventually uh, get to a point where they can have fans back in and back in stadiums again. There's that Raiders Stadium, Allegiant Stadium in Vegas. You know he wants to headline in there. So um, that's going to be interesting to see. It's been another big show this week, Sandu. Let's wrap things up very quickly with this weekend's fight card. UFC on ESPN Plus 38 or UFC on, oh, sorry, UFC Fight Island 6. Uh, on the social um, big fight in the featherweight division a fight that's been a long time coming it's been booked once it fell through uh, we've had uh, plenty of chat between the two over the uh, over the course of the last 18 months or so we are finally going to get Brian Ortega versus the Korean zombie Chan Sung Jung potential number one contender fight at 145 pounds it's a biggie Sandu what way are you leaning right now I'm not sure because last time Brian Ortega fought, I was actually in attendance for that one. I had just moved to Toronto, Canada in October of 2018 and he fought in Toronto December 2018 against Max Holloway. And it was essentially a one round, you know, a one-sided fight. And the damage that he took from Max Holloway, I remember the, the, the pictures and the images, his face was brutalized. And it's incredible to me that he hasn't fought now in two years. Almost two years. That's insane. And then on the other side of the card, with regards to Chan Sung Jung, we talked about some of the greatest knockouts in UFC history. And we talk about bouncing back from that Yair Rodriguez knockout in November of 2018. And since then, he went on to beat Hinato Moicano and Frankie Edgar. But he himself hasn't fought at all in 2020. So... It'll be interesting to see if ring rust, you know, or cage rust plays any part, more so perhaps with Brian Ortega, because we haven't seen him you know, compete in, in such a long time. If I'm being honest, some of the, the the antics and the drama and some of the stuff that's kind of gone on between these two hasn't really done it done it done anything for me. I'm just so excited about the fight from a stylistic point of view. So I don't know if he's going to produce a number one contender, though. Like, does Brian Ortega, after losing to Max Holloway almost two years ago, just get one win over the Korean Zombie and point for the title? I'm not so sure. But I think from Chan Sung Young's perspective, there's probably a much better case to be made. Because if he beats Brian Ortega, who just fought for the title two years ago, that would be a three-fight win streak. And if he can finish Brian Ortega, that would be three finishes in a row. That, for me is a situation where, yeah, Korean Zombie fight for the title. I, I absolutely love to see it, and he deserves it, and he's earned it. Um, and I'm thinking I'm just slightly going to lean towards Korean Zombie here, Simon. I think, you know, there's a, a large chunk of his career where he was on, on duty for the Korean army, and then he came back. But I think that perhaps done him some good. It allowed his body to heal itself and kind of 
he, he had time to kind of evolve his game. And, you know, even though we haven't seen him fight this year, both his outings in 2019 looked fantastic. And so he's riding some momentum. He's the in-form guy. And I'm picking him to beat T-City here. Yeah, I am. I've got the Korean zombie in this one. Never been submitted in his career, Chan Sung Young. Um, and uh, as you say, he's the guy in form. He's the hot hand right now. Um, the reason why I think it might be a number one contender fight is twofold. One is probably because I'm leaning a little bit towards Chan Sung Jung winning the fight. And I think that if he wins, it gives him a really, really strong case to face Alexander Volkanovsky next. But even if Brian Ortega wins, the fact that he, he wouldn't be rematching Max Holloway, he would be fighting Alexander Volkanovsky, a fresh matchup, I think gives him a chance. I think if Max still had the belt, I think it would be a tough sell because it's it's still a bit soon, I think, to do that fight again. It was so one-sided. But Volkanovsky is a fresh matchup. So I think if Ortega were to finish the Korean Zombie in like really decisive, spectacular fashion, put him away early or put him away spectacularly, then I think he's got a chance. I think he's got a chance. I mean, you look at the rest of the division. Holloway's had two goes at uh, Volkanovsky. Zabit Magomed Sharapov can't get a fight. <laughs> he was supposed to face Yaya Rodriguez. Rodriguez is injured and out of the mix. So Zabit needs somebody to fight. Maybe he'll face Max next. Who knows? Um, Calvin Cater's knocking around, but he's ranked lower than everybody we've just mentioned. Um, so I really do think that whoever, if someone gets a finish in the main event this weekend, I think they're going to have a really, really strong case. Um, and given that Volkanovski hasn't fought in a little while, if they can make a quick turnaround, we could well see Volkanovski maybe in the first pay-per-view of 2021 against the winner of uh, Saturday night's fight. But um, whether it turns out to be a legit number one contender fight or whether it's one that puts somebody one fight away, it is a biggie at £145. Talking of biggies, Cyril Ghani or Cyril Gain is taking on anti Delizia, um, heavyweight action, Croatian, uh, very, very dangerous Croatian actually, coming in against Cyril Ghani, really dangerous himself, he's undefeated, big, big opportunity here for both these guys, especially Cyril who, as I say, unbeaten, he's looked pretty solid, but they've put him in a co-main event slot, that, that tells you what the UFC matchmakers think of him, Sandy. Yeah, and the fact that he's French and now French MMA, the door is wide open there. I'm sure you're going to start to see the UFC, A, sign a lot more French talent. But you've got someone here in Cyril Garnet where if he gets another win here, you'd, you'd have to think that at some point in 2020, especially if COVID is, is, is gone and, and not a factor anymore, that the UFC are going to hold an event in France. And you're going to have, you know, you, or you're going to want to have a lot of talent fill up that card uh, to showcase the best of the French talent that they have. And Cyril Garnet, like you said, Simon, off to a flyer, 6-0, and undefeated. Uh, three of his UFC uh, performances, two of them have come uh, with a finish. So I'm excited about him as a prospect. And um, yeah, it's a pretty high-profile situation. Like a co-main event uh, on a fight night card headlined by Ortega San Chung Jung. That's a pretty good spot. Yeah, definitely. And ahead of a really important fight at 125 pounds, Women's flyweight division, Jessica Andrade taking on Caitlin Chikagian. That's a good one for that division. But just before we finish up, let's talk about the fight that precedes it. Uh, there is a, a slight British interest in this one insofar as 
Lithuania's Modestus Bukowskis lives and trains in England. Um, he's taking on Jimmy Crew, who is one of the most exciting up-and-coming light heavyweights. Hasn't quite broken through to the very top level yet, but he's great fun to watch. But so's Modestus. This is a real... I think this could be a fight of the night, potentially. These two, I think it's a really good piece of matchmaking and uh, a great test for Modestus so early in his UFC career against a guy who's nicely established and he's making his way in that light heavyweight division. Crute is 11-1. and one. Bukowskis is 11-2. and two. They're both on an upward trajectory. That one could be a banger, Sandu. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of Modestus Bukowskis, I was on shift for BT Sport when he made his UFC debut back in July. Great performance. Got that first round TKO win. And this is great. This year, we've seen so much new British talent emerge uh, get that opportunity on the big stage, the UFC. And I, I agree with you, Simon. I think this is fantastic matchmaking on the UFC's part. I think Jimmy Crew is a good litmus test for Modestus. And a big win here. And again, this is a main card opportunity for him. A big win here. And he could be, again, like like those guys like we spoke about earlier on, Tom Aspinall, right? That, that leaves 2020 having got a few wins on the UFC banner under their belt. And it's just a great platform to then push on and go on to bigger and better things. So I'm looking forward to this fight as well. Yeah, there's some good stuff on this card. Thomas Almeida is on this card. Claudio Hannibal Silva is on this card against James Krause. That will be an absolutely superb fight at 170 pounds. And the former two-weight two champion from KSW, I can't even talk anymore, Matthias Gamrot is making his UFC debut. His fight got pushed back an event. It's due to fight this past weekend. Now it's happening this coming weekend against Guram Kutaladze from Georgia. Um, Gamrot, he's got the potential to be a real factor at £155. And Gillian uh, Robertson, who I think has, has broken all of Ronda Rousey's submission records in the UFC uh, from, from your neck of the woods up there in Canada. She's back in the cage. Uh, the redhead Savage taking on Pollyanna Botello. That could be a fun one as well. John Phillips is on the card, more British involvement. Uh, he's in there against Jun Young Park at middleweight, fourth fight of the night uh, for him. That is the fight card for this coming weekend. That'll be on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, if you're on Sandu's side of the pond, it will be on BT Sport. If you're on my side of the pond, uh, early prelims, as usual, will be on UFC Fight Pass. Another big show, Sandu. Another big show. Absolutely. And for those of you who want to support the show, the best way you can do that is if you go to the Britpack.substack.com, drop in your email, subscribe to the show at our headquarters. And from there, you can you know just pick whichever platform you want to subscribe to, whether it's Apple, Spotify, and all the rest of it. For those of you who do listen to us on Apple Podcasts, if you could do us a favor and drop us a rate and a review, it takes literally 30 seconds of your time, but it goes a long way for us and for the show to um, to get recognized and get discovered on the Apple platform. We're the Brit Pack MMA on Twitter. I am at Sandu MMA across Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Simon is at Simon Head on Twitter and at Simon Head Sport on Instagram. And that's a wrap for, for this week's show. Another a big one, Simon. Uh, I think we've got to the stage now uh, over the last kind of couple of weeks where these shows are getting longer and longer and it's not for a... Uh, we're not filling it with fluff either. There's just so much to talk about. It's great. It's great. It's good to have so much to talk about rather than scrambling around trying to work out what we're going to talk about. 
Hope everyone out there enjoyed the show. Give us a follow. Give us a subscribe. Drop us a review, as Sandu said. Um, And if there's anything you want us to talk about, any sort of off-the-wall topics, something sort of away from the general week-to-week grind of uh, events and and all the rest of it, you want us to weigh in on anything in particular, hit us up. Either of us on Twitter or the Britpack MMA on Twitter. Let us know. And uh, we'll, we'll see if we can drop some of that stuff in in future shows. Thank you once again for joining us. And uh, we've got loads of fights coming up this week as well. So get the fridge full, sit yourself down, enjoy the fights, and we'll be back to talk about it all next week. Mm-hmm.